Bam, bam, bam. Well, hi, guys. I love you. Hi. Oh, I love, love you, too. You. <laughs> <laughs> love, love you. Love you. <laughs> oh, my God. You know what I rented oh, love you too. the other night? I, I finally saw it was the Run and Stimpy documentary. Oh, it was good, good wasn't it? Oh, I haven't seen it yet. So good. But I... It was really good. I wish I didn't know that much about John Kay, but yeah, that's okay. Kind of, kind of puts a little bit of a damper on the whole thing, but but you I know, still love it the was, show. I'll always love the right, show. Absolutely, and like, even though he was a really awful person, for them to go through the motions of how good of an artist he is, ooh, that was really cool to see all yeah. that. And yeah, that was fabulous. It took them a long time to make that documentary. I was a backer for it, like I think starting like four years ago. And it just came out like earlier, what was it, late last year? So I was really impressed with what they did. Money well yeah, spent. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, there's going to be bastards of plenty in this episode, that's for sure. Oh, boy. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It's going to be goth as fuck. Temple love, 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 love. Yeah, like, <laughs> like we were talking, I was just like, man, this is like rivals any gothic romance novel I've ever read. For like, sure. Yes, it is so much you, drama, dude. I don't know if you guys ever, had you guys ever read um, The Sorrows of Young Werther? No. In school? Oh, God, no. I can't, how do you pronounce the guy's names? Like Gauthier or Goats or something? Anyway, he it was just, it was a fucking sad sack. It was just this guy who was like, in love with this girl and she just never reciprocated and like and he's just like oh i can't possibly live and then he like tries to kill himself well actually he does kill himself in the end but it's just like he's just just like dude let it go and man. they needed some cigarettes <laughs> eyeliner and fishnets and all of this that's what they needed yeah yes well i guess they had the victorian equivalent you know it's like a lot of black silk and dead people's hair <laughs> yeah <laughs> But they actually had shit happening to them. It wasn't just angst. It was, this is real oh, shit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like yeah, infant mortality sure. and, ugh. Oh, yeah. You ugh. know. Well, well, yeah, we'll get into all that. So, mm-hmm. well, welcome to Under the Pendulum. <laughs> I'm Chris Weber. Here, as always, is Heather Weber. Hello. And joining us from LA is uh, Caitlin Weber. Oh, hi. <laughs> it's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> That 1930s performance of Dr. Frankenstein, that sound bit of him screaming it's alive, ooh, it's really good, it's like take, yeah. It's like cognac or something. It's just so good. <laughs> warms it's your like bones. like an audible cognac. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. So if you haven't noticed, in following our exploration of women in horror, for the next two episodes, we'll be talking about the sad but fruitful life of Mary Shelley. So most of you will know her as the author of one of the most well-known and arguably greatest horror novels of all time, Frankenstein, or Modern Prometheus. Yeah! Yeah. Yeah, and this is also one of the earliest examples of science fiction, too, which is Mm -hmm. really amazing. She created like a whole genre. Yeah, she really did. Yeah. A lot earlier than you think, you know, because I think a lot of people would imagine it like kind of late 1800s, but it's really kind of the early part of the 1800s. Yeah, I think what she wrote in like eighteen sixteen, eighteen sixteen. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get into it. You know, I really struggled with reading, and I didn't give a shit about it at all. Like at a certain age, I think I was like nine, ten. But I picked up like a a, a version of Frankenstein that I could understand, and I just started reading, and I and I started, you know, 
processing it and it was one of the first things that ever got me into literature because it was so fucking good you know yeah that's really amazing Frankenstein it's been a long time since I've read it I know I I want to read it it again again really bad (laughs) yeah a lot of really cool like undertones of you know I mean all all kinds of things I mean like social commentary and yeah, yeah, philosophy of like life and death and like aristocracy and the poor and then like gender roles, especially like yes. parent gender roles. Slavery. Yeah, yeah. slavery. Yeah. Oh, man. The things from the monster's perspective are so painful and poetic and really just heartfelt. I I really appreciate that that character so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So unlike our Poe series, uh, Mary's story is much more robust as we have a plethora of correspondence and journal entries. And she wrote in her journal like quite often. So we, we have a lot on her on her personal thoughts and kind of what was going on in her life. You know, that's going to be what's one reason why it was a lot of research mm. for this ep- for these upcoming two episodes, because it was just, it's a lot of shit to, to roll through. Which yeah. would you it's say? Not, she... not, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Oh, no. I mean, it's, just, it's not just her journal entries and letters as well. I mean, it's like the people around her, you know, her husband, Percy Shelley, her dad, uh, William Godwin. I mean, it's just. All these people kept really Her sisters, um, like all the yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they all ro- they all wrote a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, wow. so it's I mean a lot a lot on on her on like Poe where there's a lot of like kind of mystique around around parts of his life. Right. Would you say she had her shit together and she was a little more likable than Poe? <laughs> Definitely more likable. More yeah. likable, yeah. Um, shit together, I don't know. <laughs> oh, yeah. yay! I'm excited. And, um, you know, we must also add the caveat that some of the more unsavory details of her life and that of her famous poet husband, Percy Shelley, are hotly contested and debated by historians. So, you know, when we were reading different books or we looking at different publications about their lives, um, there are a lot of inconsistencies, conflicting accounts and interpretations. And many of the scandals that we'll kind of go over are never really cut and dry. Yeah. So I just kind of want to add that in the beginning that. Some things are up for debate on whether they actually happened or not, particularly on the scandals. So, you know, that's definitely going to be something important because you could read, you know, me and Heather read two different books. And one book that I read was a little more sympathetic to Percy, but the one she read was a lot more um, kind of lambasting. Like, fuck Percy. Of, of him. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but coincidentally, I think a guy wrote mine. I was going to. I was like, that woman, was the first thing that so. popped in my head. Uh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So funny, we'll take huh? that as you would take it as you will, I guess. You know. Yeah. Yeah. But one thing that is clear, however, is that Mary would be instrumental in contributing to the world of horror by creating one of the most well-known figures, Frankenstein's monster. And Frankenstein has been reprinted many times since the 1800s, and it's been translated into many different languages. So much fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's crazy. It's it's really big in Japan. That's or wonderful. It was really, uh, yeah. Of course it is. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and sense. it's so it's so lovely to see how even though it's only one subject matter and like one description, how many different variations of his form there is. It's just really really cool. Yeah, there is different interpretations. Yeah. Man. It's just like a bunch of bodies like put together basically, so you could so it could look like anything. Exactly. Yeah. And like you can make them cute as fuck. That's the beauty about sci-fi <laughs> in general. You can make them what is cute. So you can make them cute as fuck, yeah. Right. 
Got Hugh Big Jackman's ears. Eyes. I don't know why. <laughs> Got Jude mm. Law's nose and chin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Got Johnny Depp's eyes, ladies. Got Matthew McConaughey's voice. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. I just want to be loved, man. All right. <laughs> That's silly. That's silly. That sounds nightmarish, truly. Yeah. Or Nick Cage's voice, if you'd if you'd prefer. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Ooh. No. Not the fire. <laughs> that is the most unsexy thing I can think of. Because <laughs> you've got this kind of thing going on. <laughs> Reminds me of this kid that I knew. He's like, hi, I'm Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> Will you go out with me? Will you go out with me? <laughs> What's up, guys? Sorry, I drooled. Ew. <laughs> I love De Niro's fucking big ass, big ass monster in the, in that version in the '90s. That was really great. Uh, you know, not yeah. one of the best. I like you know that. It was fun. decisions. Did you? I didn't see I it. Did. I just I. It's hard for me to imagine him. It was fun. That. Yeah. Okay. Well, the well, the check it yeah, out. Yeah, I'm always check, super check distracted. It's worth if, watch. Like the. If the if the writing is is decent and the art department's a hundred percent, I'm all about it. So I've I've been my ju- judgment has been clouded in the past from that. Oh okay. Right. Yeah. I haven't watched it since it came out, probably. So I'll have to to do it again. I own it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into the story, um, her creation is one of the most identifiable creatures in literature, and even today. We still see the production of films, and she is still often read in many English and literary classrooms. Mary is to be remembered not only for this contribution to horror, but also as one of the most formidable intellectuals of her age. Which is something, it's funny that we'll see. She, like, made men very uncomfortable because she was just, like, such an intellectual force. Yeah, she is a force of nature, man. Yeah, and she mm. she's so well-read like I don't know she like some of the greatest minds she would like converse with and she would just like shoot them down <gasps> drop it's the mic cool. kind of thing and it'd be the whole room yeah dude was like, oh! <laughs> yeah <laughs> I think it was uh I think it was Keats could barely be around her because he would, <laughs> he felt like so like I would just inadequate get sudden diarrhea and flagellants from how nervous I was <laughs> <laughs> and she had beautiful, striking features too. She had this gorgeous, like reddish blonde hair, like a really high forehead that was like creamy white. Like people would always remark on her features and just how damn beautiful girl. she was. I didn't know she was super pretty too. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. She's a man eater. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would also kind of get her like the ire of certain uh, other men because she was such an intellectual force that they felt. Like inferior, which yeah, emasculated, inferior, and in that time, you know, that was just sort of like it. It seemed against God and nature to, yeah. for a man to be, you know, inferior to a woman. There's so much fucked yep. shit going on right now, but I am so glad that that's not something that's like, you know, a topic of conversation to be yeah, a woman. Not, and, not over yeah. here anyway. Mm-mm. Yeah. Yeah, we'll be breaking this up into two episodes. So Heather will be kind of taking the first half of her life. And then on the next episode, I'll be talking about the the final half of her life. All right. Strap in, folks. Yep. Go be sad. Legs and arms inside the vehicle. <laughs> Dad joke. That was good. I liked it. I liked it. Because then you just put me in a place that I'm excited to go. 
<laughs> mer, mer. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley was born August 30th, 1797. She was truly a remarkable woman who came from a remarkable background. And we feel it is not only important, but necessary to give a bit of history on her parents before we get into the story of her early life. So my main source for today is the book Mary Shelley by Miranda Seymour. This thing is mammoth. It's like 800 page monster and it's incredibly thorough. Yeah. It's like a 27 hour audiobook. It's like rivals Stephen King books. Yeah, man, I wow. uh, I start I, I've been kind of listening to parts of it, kind of like supplementing the book I read, which was like a lot shorter than that one. <laughs> I think the one I read was like 230 pages or something. Right. So a lot less thorough, um, even though a lot of people <clears throat> did say the, the person did do a lot of research and it showed. But I think yeah. the biases showed as well. Um, yeah. Real quick. How, how what did she what age did she die, die at? Uh, Mary I she was 53. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah so she, she died really young. Yeah. So yeah. it's such a huge book for such a short life. That's really interesting. It, short, but very full life. Yes. I bet. Yeah. So Mary's father was William Godwin, an English political author and philosopher. Born in 1756, he was the seventh of 13 children in a family of Calvinists, a sect of Protestants. His father was a nonconformist minister and the Godwins lived as dissenters, experiencing discrimination in differing ways due to their beliefs. Now, William was the most promising child of all the Godwin children, and so his parents focused a lot of their meager resources on his education. Because they were dissenters, he was not allowed to attend a prestigious college such as Oxford. However, he received a good education from Hoxton Academy, studying to become a minister himself. This academy had the opposite effect on young William, And this is where he cultivated his liberal beliefs and became, ultimately, a declared atheist. Which was, like, the worst fucking thing you could do in this time Oh, yeah. Not that son of mine. We put you through school, blah, 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 blah. I mean, it's bad enough they were Protestants, but... Yeah, I mean, if you showed any sort of, like, atheistic leanings, you were considered, like, a moral deviant. Yeah. Like, a lot lot of times you'd be shunned from society and, you know, you... Sometimes couldn't get work, and, and you know, there's a lot of things you couldn't do just because you had you were an atheist. You're just like screaming while they throw out all your shit, and you're like, you know, fired. Like, just think about it really for a second, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, doesn't some of that stuff seem kind of kind of silly, right? <laughs> I mean, come on, walking on water for real? <laughs> Sleep on <laughs> it, slam. <laughs> <laughs> So William instead chose to become a teacher and an author, and he wrote about a large array of subjects. Also being the most successful Godwin family member, he supported his parents and siblings in any way he could. Now Mary's mother was Mary Wollstonecraft, born in 1759, and she was the second of seven children, and she had a much different background. And she was a bad bitch. Badass. Yeah. She had little schooling and no religious influence in her upbringing. Her father was an abusive alcoholic, and Mary assumed a motherly role for her younger sisters, going so far as to help one of her depressed sisters leave her unhappy marriage for the prospect of a better life. At age 19, she left her home and took a job as a lady's companion, a sort of lady-in-waiting, to a widow in Bath, 
but did not get along with the woman and left two years later to care for her dying mother. I was going to say, like, these rich ladies are so fucking miserable. They got to hire friends. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, a lot of people had servants and, you know. Yeah. So, like, so you had a lot more time on your hands, you know, so you Mm -hmm. could, like, pursue a lot, like, a lot of other things. Which we'll kind of find out about Mary and Percy, Mm -hmm. you know, even though they didn't always have servants, they, they did. And it allowed them to basically, like... All they did was read and write and sleep and eat Debate. and like, sure. travel around. That's, I mean, in my opinion, that's why we still have some of the greatest art and art forms ever because there was so much time. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I um in one of the I, I was reading a book um, that was published in 1889 by uh, like a friend of, of the Shelley's and she like. Uh, published a bunch of Mary Shelley's like letters and correspondence and, and kind of like a short biography. Well, actually, it's not short. It's three volumes. But um, she just for one year lists the number of books that they read between her and, and Percy. Oh, it's Jesus. fucking insane. Dude, like it's I mean, there must have been like 40 books and like they're yeah. reading shit like Spencer's The Fairy Queen. And if you ever seen The Fucking Fairy Queen, it's huge. It's a fucking huge book. Um, so I mean, just the amount reading. they were able to read. Yeah, yeah they, they, I yeah. mean, that was a part of their like daily regiments. Was yeah. even in the hard times, they they read. It was, it's crazy. I, and I then, just, like, not to mention, you know, debate and speaking to each other was another pastime. So like, you were constantly practiced in language and those ways and stuff like that. Absolutely, it's so crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mary ended up, uh, you know, being pretty proficient in I th- like quite a few languages like Greek and Latin yeah. and she tried to learn Spanish for a little while and and she like, sounds like she yeah. would be a spy if she had just born in the 60s okay yeah mm-hmm. yeah and she taught herself a lot of these too she would just sit there and, and study on yeah. her own accord mm-hmm. crazy yep because she loved to no so in 1785 Wollstonecraft then took a job in Ireland as a governess but once again did not get along with the lady of the house. She was an excellent teacher to the children, but decided after a year she wanted to pursue writing as a career. Wollstonecraft was strongly against marriage and fostered a philosophy that included free love as much as free will for women. This is still a controversial topic for a woman to speak on in much of the world today, let alone for a woman in 1790s Western society. But she was an extraordinary woman. They didn't even have bras to burn. They would have had to burn the whole damn corset back then. Like, come on now. (laughs) Hell yes. Yeah, dude. So the last decade of the 1700s was a time of incredible change and discovery. There was a substantial interest and development of inventions, chemistry, science, and electricity. With this, in the view of the government and the less educated, came fear and rejection of these new concepts. And it was a perfect storm for a couple of revolutionaries. The Enlightenment period. (laughs) (laughs) This is is the dawning of Queria. (laughs) (laughs) So Godwin and Wollstonecraft first met at a dinner in 1791 with famed revolutionary and political activist Thomas Paine. They did not care for each other upon this first meeting, however, Godwin thinking Mary opinionated and disagreeable. And on top of this, Mary was pursuing the painter and married man, Henry Fuseli at the time, which we talked about in our Sleep Paralysis episode. He's the uh, the guy who painted the, the nightmare. 
like yeah, top right. five favorite artists, like probably number <laughs> one or number two. Like fucking love his work. Yeah, I mean it's like the pinnacle of like that gothic Ugh. kind of era, you know, the like yeah. gothic romantic kind of uh, style. And you'll notice throughout this whole through the story through all episodes, like there's going to be a lot of of really famous figures kind of coming in yes. and out of the That's of the story. So it's crazy. Yeah, man. it's it's really incredible. I mean, they were in the like intellectual and artistic center of I don't know. I guess the Anglo-Saxon world, you know, in a lot yeah. of ways, the Western world. He was like if William Blake was in Bauhaus or something. Like he was just such a hottie. Oh my god! I was just reading some William Blake the yes. other day, <laughs> and he was like, I saw a portrait of him once, and I was like, Oh dang, you're actually really cute, and his subject matter's <laughs> so good. Ugh, he was like a goddamn rock star. He's so such a fox. <laughs> Henry was sexy. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. I'm gonna keep. I'm gonna like say that on pretend accident all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) So Shelley and Wollstonecraft would part ways for a number of years, hearing of one another here and there as they ran in the same circle of revolutionaries. Furthermore, their respective publications created controversy and a stir within the tumultuous political climate. In 1792, the French put their king, Louis XVI, on trial. Thomas Paine was urged to flee England for his own safety, which prompted Wollstonecraft to follow him to Paris. By this time, she had already published her her important feminist work and second political publication, The Vindication of the Rights of Woman. Oh, yeah. This work was a direct criticism and response to the philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau's writings on education and inequality between men and women, where he advocated for some equality, but still maintained that women were inferior. I had to read that horse shit in college. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, when I took gender theory, um, it was like definitely a a kind of comparison, because it is a comparison, um, you know, but it's, you know, it's that that, like idea of equality at the time, but, you know, Rousseau's saying it from the perspective of a man of the 18th century, you know, and so it's just like, well, men and women are equal, but, you know, women are still inferior and they should, just, you know, they need to be in their place because it is it's the only thing that preserves hum- humankind. And, you know, and Mary's just like, uh, I know. I just remember, okay. I remember that feeling <laughs> of being like that, like reading it. Well, yeah. And it's something that we even hear like that a lot of people would tell you today, you know, or who work with like social injustices and stuff that like if you educate women and elevate their status in society you will see like um those societies kind of rise out of like i don't know a lot of times out of poverty you know in whatever kind of like social ailments um it's it's really fascinating but you know so so you have so you have wollstonecraft kind of taking that route like saying like no women are equal but and also need to be raised to the same level as men right and like what's that like age-old saying like a happy woman is a happy village Kind of thing. Uh, happy wife, happy life. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Something like that, but that's like, the most, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's the newest iteration of that, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a weird one. Yeah. But anyway, just women treated well and, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, appropriately. Absolutely, yep. In Vindication, she championed that women should have equal rights as men and should be able to claim this position in society. She wished to be in the center of the revolution and had given herself that voice through her publications. It's funny because she she goes to France to kind of just, like, check out the revolution. 
It's, yeah. It's just so it's funny. Like it's just sort of like super dangerous and she could be raped and fucking murdered and shit like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's just it's so funny cuz it's like one of the, you know, like one of these like absolute turning points of history, especially of European yeah. history. And she's just like, I just want to go check it out, you know, like For sure. And like people <laughs> were desperately cool, trying to flee and stuff like that. That's mm-hmm. crazy. Yeah. yeah. Shit was hitting the fan. That's like that's like going to check out the trenches during World War One. That that's crazy. <laughs> well, it's like I think during the Civil War there were like certain battles, you know, the American Civil War, there were certain battles where like people would come with like a picnic, you know, like up and watch from a hill, like watch the battle. In the for the Civil War, you said? <laughs> In the, the American Civil War, yeah. Oh my god, that's it was just like wretched. Oh, I packed a lunch. You guys wanna go check out like the battle? You oh, know, it's god. it's fucking yeah, it's just crazy. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, meanwhile, in 1793 England, only a month after the execution of Louis XVI, William Godwin published his own influential work, An Inquiry Concerning the Nature of Political Justice. Marriage, centralized government, and organized religions, religion was in the crosshairs in this argument for, quote, justice in a society of equals. These revolutionaries were on the government's radar and they knew that publications such as these were circulating. The English government underestimated Godwin's influence, however. They did not expect his book to reach enough people to make any sort of impact, but his first edition sold over 3,000 copies. He was truly, quote, the father of anarchy during this time. Now, despite this, he managed to avoid prosecution somehow, whereas many friends of his did not. Godwin was a staunch opponent to violence as a means of demonstration, and he continued to publish pamphlets in response to the government's tightening grip against free speech. Still in France, Wollstonecraft fell deeply in love with an American adventurer, Gilbert Imlay. I'm not going to go too far into depth about this tumultuous and complicated relationship. There's a lot of back and forth in it. But it was a terribly sad time in Wollstonecraft's life. This affair would lead to a scandalous pregnancy— and birth of their child, Fanny, in 1894, which Imlay did not want anything to do with, and two suicide attempts by Wollstonecraft, the first by an attempted overdose of laudanum, an opium tincture, and the second after her return to England to further pursue her relationship with Imlay by weighting her pockets with stones and jumping into the Thames. Dang, that's gross, yeah. too. yeah. And well, and the thing of like her philosophy as well as Godwin's was sort of this um, objection to like institutions, you know, because Godwin would say all, almost all political institutions are inherently stupid. You know, it's just kind of a one way to put it. But because they sort of like objected these these institutions, they didn't believe in marriage. And at the time, if you had a child out of wedlock, I mean, that that basically would tarnish, especially if you're a woman, would tarnish your reputation. Mm-hmm. In the end. Oh, yeah. This That's I mean, it. that that would follow um, Mary's mother and Mary herself. I mean, you know, well after they died. Yeah. So it's 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 just a really sad, you know, just just because they didn't quite believe in, in that institution of marriage. They just they just saw it as like it's you know, I don't know. Like, they just saw it as inconsequential. Yeah. yeah just like, well, what's what's the point? Like, whatever. If you, if you love yeah. somebody, what you know? Why do I, have, you know, and also being atheists and, you know, marriage at the time was inherently a, a Christian, yeah, you know, thing. It was, it just, they were just like, why? But it, it just really, it, it fucked up, fucked up their reputation and stuff for years after. Yeah, wow. it sure did. So, Wollstonecraft was humiliated to such a severity after this relationship 
But she somehow pulled herself out of her misery and resumed her role in her literary life, finding solace in the company of her circle of friends. Now it is 1796, and Godwin and Wollstonecraft had once again become acquainted. Godwin had read her book, Letters Written in Sweden, Norway, and Denmark, and later wrote of it. If ever there was a book calculated to make a man in love with its author, this appears to me to be the book. She speaks of her sorrows in a way that fills us with melancholy and dissolves us in tenderness, at the same time that she displays a genius which commands all our admiration, William Godwin. The affair began slowly, due in part to Mary's trepidation following her last relationship, but the passion was undeniable, and they were deeply in love with each other. In fact, Mary was pregnant only five months into their relationship. Now, as we mentioned before... Scandalous. Dang. I know. <laughs> so, yeah, as we mentioned before, neither's philosophies had accommodated the prospect of marriage. But William was now 41, and Mary was 38. And they ultimately decided to wow. wed in 1797 to spare further tarnishing her reputation. Mm-hmm. Well, that's nice. And you'll see that with like, because a lot of the circle of, of, you know, Godwin and their friends were all, you know, also had very similar um, philosophies and outlooks on on institutions and life. But you would see this commonly happen just to sort of like protect themselves and, you know, yeah. and, and still have a career. Right. It's like a reality check. For sure. Yeah. You must have had to be a very intelligent, smooth talker to keep yourself in the current of all of that. Yeah. Yeah, it was really more for propriety's sake than an actual, yeah. like, investment in the institution itself. Mm-hmm. Right. So they were delighted to welcome their new child, and they wrote texts for parents to raise their children with the philosophy that they should grow through imagination, curiosity, independence, and love. Again, very different opinion from traditional sensibilities in child rearing. So on August 30th, 1797, after a nine-hour labor, Mary Shelley was born. However, the placenta had broken during birth and had not exited with the, he- with the healthy baby girl. Attempts were made by doctors to remove it, but ultimately the infection killed Wollstonecraft ten days later, on September 10th. Oh, no! I didn't realize her mother died in childbirth. Mm-hmm. So sad. Her funeral was held five days later at the same church where they had wed. Mary Shelley would all her life blame herself for the death of her mother. That's right. Godwin was absolutely devastated by this, and in a journal entry writes about his grief and his feelings of inadequacy as a single parent. The poor children. I am myself totally unfitted to educate them. The scepticism which perhaps sometimes leads me right in matters of speculation is torment to me when I would attempt to direct the infant mind. I am the most unfit person for this office. She was the best qualified in the world. What a change. The loss of the children is less remediless than mine. You can understand the difference. William Godwin. In his grief, he published a posthumous memoir about... He posted... (laughs) Sorry... In his grief. <laughs> On Facebook, we got 20 likes. No, just kidding. <laughs> this is how the magic happens, kids. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> In his grief, he published a posthumous memoir about Wollstonecraft. 
in January 1798, <laughs> leaving nothing about her life out. Whatever reputation she had recovered was effectively destroyed by this perplexing publication, as well as Godwin's own reputation. People close to the couple were stumped as to why he would publish such intimate and private details of her life. It's like he he put everything in there. It, like I, why, I think why? he, it's like, I think it's that idea of like kind of, you know, true love's blind thing. I think I think yeah. he he loved her so much and he really wanted the world to to know her as he did. He didn't think about the wider implications of, of yeah. that action, you know. Like and... I I don't think he I don't know, he he didn't take in like the social um atmosphere, you know, yeah. like in, in the climate, you know, even though he sh- he he should have known better. Um yes. but Godwin was sort of this like he was optimistic in a weird way because, like, the theory, one theory that he had that you would find Percy and Mary would follow for most of their lives and be perplexed that he didn't support them was that, like, people can perfect themselves and live perfect lives, but they have to, like, sort of relinquish these, like, the institutions and things that kind of hold people back from being perfect. Mm-hmm. Um and it's I, I think it was just that I think that is, I think he was just so blinded in by his grief and his love for her that he just he didn't think about it. You know, he, he it was he has no forethought, which I think we'll, we'll see much later on that he, yeah. he really has no forethought. And she had the cutest birthmark on her bottom that was in the shape of an <laughs> opossum. Not too far off. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, as a result of this, her vindications publications would not again be printed until 1840 oh no yeah and it's i mean it's still it's it's considered like um a very important work even today like i i i I came across it in three different classes that i had in college all talking about different subjects but you know there's a lot to pull from that work was he just like she and she gave me a hand job in the maze like kind of thing (laughs) like yeah, it's more yeah. just like about, you know, her beliefs in atheism, free love and, oh, you know, oh, um, wow. having a yeah. kid out of wedlock before marrying mm-hmm. him and just airing suicide out the attempts. Dirty, right. Yep. Just airing out the dirty laundry Everything. that could have been. Dang. Yeah, yeah. Things that seem like perfectly reasonable to him, but mm-hmm. to, you know, to, to the outside world were, I mean, it, it marked them as deviants, moral and sexual deviants. Yes. And you know, know that like 70, 90 percent of these people like had the same sh- dirty laundry, but they just kept it secret. You know, that's so that's such a, I was just thinking about the other day because a big thing about Victorian life is even though you you have all this going on with this, you know, like, oh, well, we would never do that. Everybody was sleeping with everybody else. It kind of was like a free yeah. love thing. And I mean, like, there was. But. but yeah, it was just like, but in the to the outside world, oh no, we don't do that. It but had to be yeah, everybody was fucking everybody. You know, yeah, exactly. Fiction. Yeah, I mean, their their only mistake was being public about it. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, at the at the time anyway. Yeah. So this memoir cost him friendships as well. Mary Wollstonecraft was humiliated for the last time by the man she loved most after her death. Godwin was never a man with much tact. By April of that same year, Godwin was already looking for another wife. Perhaps he found the prospect as a single father of two daughters too daunting for his regular activities as an author and philosopher. He demonstrated just this, choosing his work over his girls. He was not short of help with the young, with the young Fanny and Mary, 
as many of Wollstonecraft's friends and some of Godwin's acquaintances would assist him. It's no secret that Godwin favored Mary over Fanny. Mary was sharp and astute, and this did not go unnoticed by anyone who met the girls. She, in fact, was paraded around as a Mary Wollstonecraft in the making, and was often present during the lively discussions that took place in the Godwin's home. Yeah, there's a funny story that, like, Mary, um, you know, because Godwin would have over all these, like, amazing intellectuals and, and like, yeah. poets and writers and, you know, so it was, like, her and her sister at the time, I think, um, or this might have, been, it might have been with Jane, but, like, they went yeah. and hid behind a couch. I don't, I don't know if you're going to mention oh, that. Oh, yeah, later, I heard but... that that one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like, um, because, yeah, like, Mary's future stepmother wouldn't let them in with a conversation because it was all men. Um, right. But, like, Mary was just so enthralled by the intellectual conversations that, oh, yeah. like, she's like, fuck it, and, like, hid behind a couch and stuff and was, like, just listening eagerly to, I mean, to these intellectual titans of their day. Right. It's, it's uh, yeah. So she, I mean, absolutely fell in love very quickly with the atmosphere. She loved nothing more to learn all her life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Mary devoured her mother's educational books, and she idolized her mother. While they were living at number 29 in the Polygon, just north of central London in 1801, a neighbor by the name of Mary Jane Claremont gained the attention of Godwin. She was a fan of his, and a courtship ensued. She herself was the mother of a young child, Claire, known as Jane in childhood. She eventually got pregnant by Godwin, but this first pregnancy did not survive. Despite this, they were married. Now, Claremont was not well-liked by Godwin's friends. In fact, she made many enemies, described as a gossip and a liar, and a definite nuisance. Mm. She was also an impressive woman, on the other hand, crafty and intelligent. She was fluent in French, and was also an author herself and a translator, qualities that Godwin, no doubt, admired. Yeah, it's like Godwin's friends were like, really? Her? (laughs) Like. That's yeah. that's really, but I I think he was just so lost, you know, and, yeah. and he didn't know how to handle, you know, the two girls. Um, he didn't right. know how to edge, you know, he didn't he didn't know what to do. Um, no. so I think it was I think he definitely admired her, but I think it was more he saw a mother, you know, yeah, like yeah. for his children. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. And to take care of him too, because <laughs> yeah, he was, most importantly. He was a, a, he was a big mess, so. Yes, he was. <laughs> that still happens to people all the time to this day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Divorces, all these things, yeah. So young Mary did not care for her stepmother and mostly kept her distance. She was rebellious against her, possibly because Godwin doted upon her so passionately. In 1803, Claremont gave birth to a half-brother, William. Mary Jane persuaded Godwin to open a children's bookshop and publishing house in 1805, as the family was falling on hardships financially. This shop would prove to be profitable, but in the long run would never keep the family out of debt. All the children were educated, and equally expected to contribute to the family business. It is speculated that Mary, as a young girl, contributed to some of the stories of the publications the Godwins produced. They did a lot of children's books and children's stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't can't remember what the most famous one is. Uh, one of the most famous was uh, the Canterbury Tales, but it was written for children. 
Oh, okay. So it probably That's had cool. a it probably had a lot of the dirty. I don't know if you guys, yeah. if you ever read the Canterbury Tales, there's a lot of like very mm-hmm. dirty sexual and like fart jokes. Yeah. Poop jokes, butt jokes, um, butt which is jokes. very, you know, it's it's, fu- it's funny for a 13th, uh, a 1300s, you know, you would think it, they'd be so, um, you know, like, like, oh, oh, you know, like, oh, we couldn't possibly, but no, they, they love dirty shit. So yeah. um, they probably kind of toned it down a little bit. Um, but yeah, it was, it was widely pop- popular. Um at the time they just had a couple other really popular ones yeah there's like a children's library series or something that they did i think it was uh i think it was like some fairy tales and things like that too um hmm. um in 1807 the godwins left the polygon and moved the shop and family home to 41 skinner street in london's bookselling district this move mary would later say marked the end of her childhood the skinner street address was run down and bleak surrounded by bookshops, butchers, and prisons. Hangings were commonplace, and crowds would often gather close to their home to witness them. See, and if they had been smart, they would have rented out, um, like, the top part of their, their house for, for spectators, Yeah, which was a very common right. practice. <laughs> Charge admission, yeah. for sure. Yeah, no, yeah. Yeah, people would, uh, it was definitely in France and England, too, where they would, um, Anyone who's had a place or a window that was, you know, above so you could see, they would charge people yeah. uh, to get, like, a better view. That's, that's genius. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so financial hardships continued to plague the Godwins, and Mary Jane had an abusive temper. During 1811, Mary herself started to suffer from ill health, and her resentment for her stepmother only grew. She couldn't help but see this woman as the antithesis of her own mother. Mary's relationship with her father started to become strained. Mary resolved to increase her studies, as she was a voracious learner and her father certainly took notice. However, Godwin was becoming less of the man he was every day, and depression was something he would battle from here until the end of his life. At age 14, because of Mary's ill health, a doctor advised that she move to a more temperate climate, so the Godwin sent her to Ramsgate School on the Isle of Thanet. Instead of relishing the experience, Mary felt abandoned and made no friends while she was in, in attendance there for six months, and her health did not improve. During this time, however, she did learn more of her mother's ideas and discovered that Wollstonecraft, among other ideas, was a believer in free love. Cue the Hendrix. I know, I was going to say, oh man, and she went to a party and had like fucking joints. If the truth is fine. To be alive. (laughs) Fuck you, Dad. (laughs) While Mary was at Ramsgate, Godwin made a friend in the 19-year-old writer, Percy Shelley, over written correspondences. He had recently printed a pamphlet entitled the necessity of atheism, which no doubt perked up the ears of Godwin. Shelley had been expelled from Oxford because of this and was disinterested in inheriting his family's fortune and all that came with it. He had eloped with author, coffeehouse heiress, and acquaintance with his younger sisters, Harriet Westbrook. Unsurprisingly, these activities put a strain on his relationship with his parents. Percy, already feeling disdain toward his father because of his corrupt political dealings, and also toward his mother, whom he accused of adultery, was banished from his family's circle. 
Although Percy was a quirky and often deceptive man, it should be mentioned that he was also very generous. He was always helping those in need, whether it be a friend or a stranger, even giving the shoes off of his feet in one account. He was just constantly giving money to people he didn't have. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he it was to a fault, man. He, I mean... Yeah, he was, I mean, he's kind of a piece of shit in some ways, but in other ways he's, you know, I don't know. He really tries to look out for, for people when he can and, and puts himself in, like, dire situations because yeah. he is trying to help him. Yes, it seems a little insane, to be honest. Yeah, it's very it's very contrarian um, yes. <laughs> with, like, some of his, some of his very selfish actions, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's really super odd. So Percy looked to Godwin as something of a father figure, and he was already a sort of hero to him. At first, Godwin was hesitant to accept Shelley as a protege, but more than willing to take him under his wing because of his potential as a generous benefactor. Godwin knew that Shelley came from a well-to-do family, and the reality was, he was sinking further into debt. Young Mary and Jane were captivated by the letters Shelley sent to Godwin. In truth, it is supposed that Shelley had a habit of making himself sound more respectable than he actually was. He failed to mention that his father had been mostly supportive of him and favored a description of oppressiveness. He presented himself as a heroic young man, and this was something the Godwin household held on to about him, even if Godwin had his, his suspicions. The prospect of financial relief was too great, so the relationship continued on. In 1812, Mary was still suffering from ill health, and Godwin resolved to send her to a seaside location. She was sent off to the home of a, fr of a friend, Robert Baxter, who resided in Dundee, for the initial agreement of five months' time. Baxter took her in gladly, and she was in good company among his brood of daughters. Mary later looked back on that time in her life with fondness and attributed this to creating her writer's voice. She fell in love with nature and was able to appreciate her surroundings, and she was able to daydream undisturbed. Journal Entry, Mary Godwin As a child, I scribbled, and my favorite pastime, during the hours given me for recreation, was to write stories. Still, I had a dearer pleasure than this which was the formation of castles in the air, the indulging in waking dreams, the following up trains of thought which had for their subject the formation of a succession of imaginary incidents. My dreams were at once more fantastic and agreeable than my writings. In the latter, I was a close imitator, rather doing as others had done than putting down the suggestions of my own mind. What I wrote was intended at least for one other eye, my childhood's companion and friend but my dreams were all my own. I accounted them to nobody. They were my refuge when annoyed, my dearest pleasure when free. Mary Godwin. Baxter's daughter, Isabella, was Mary's favorite. It just so happened that Isabella also revered Wollstonecraft. The girls read poetry and ghost stories together, Isabella having a penchant for more macabre stories, and Mary identified with her more than any of the other Baxters. In October 1812, Percy Shelley came to London with his wife Harriet to meet Godwin in person and have dinner at their home. However, Harriet did not care for the older man. Estranged from his family, 
and his family's money. Percy was himself falling on financial hardships and had started going to lenders for post-obit loans. This meant he promised portions of his eventual inheritance for loans that he ended up paying almost triple for in some cases. This would become a habit of Shelley's for many years to follow. Oh, yeah. It's so crazy. crazy. It's like a payday advance for your death. Yeah, or for, like, his family member's death. Like, upon the death of my grandfather, I will receive this inheritance, so I'll give you, you give me a 1000 I'll give you twenty five or 3000 yeah, his um, his dad, like when he found out he was taking out these kinds of loans, was like super fucking pissed. I'm That's sure. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. He's a little nuts. <laughs> it should be noted that Percy and his wife were growing apart. As a result, Percy confided in the Godwin girls, and they swooned over him. Through these interactions, Shelley was falling for Mary, and she for him. He was captivated by her intellect, her beauty and certainly by the fact that her parents were who they were. In a strange turn of events, Robert Baxter had come to London to seek Mary's hand in marriage, but it was thwarted by her infatuation with Shelley. Harriet was pregnant, but Percy told Mary that she had surely been unfaithful and the baby was not his. Mary believed him and felt bad for his misfortune. They first made love in June of 1813 in a churchyard, the affair in full swing. Harriet, I know, right? Woo! (laughs) Harriet suspected that there was an affair going on, and she blamed Mary for the situation over Percy. I mean, it's hot. Can't. She's like, it's so sacrilege. That's my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) She's probably just trying to impress him. Like, let's go to the churchyard. Yeah, I don't give Uh, a shit. Yeah, it's by this (laughs) gravestone. Yeah. Do you even know who my parents are? (laughs) <laughs> come on, come in the eye of God. Who cares, right? Ew, <laughs> uh, you said it. <laughs> Mary, now 16, was planning to elope with Shelley, and Godwin caught wind of this. Not only that, but he also learned he was only going to receive half the money he was promised. Godwin was unhappy with this news, and furthermore, it was revealed that Shelley had been courting another woman, and she herself was married. Godwin had a talk with Mary and expressed his disapproval toward their plans of elopement. Mary was confined to the schoolroom on the second floor. Shortly thereafter, Mary Jane Godwin recounts that Percy one day burst through the Skinner Street door when Godwin was not home, demanding to speak to Mary. He brushed past her stepmother and entered the room where Mary was being confined. When Mary Jane entered the room, she was distressed to find Shelley with a pistol in hand, declaring to Mary that she should swallow a bottle of laudanum and he would shoot himself to ensure that they were united in death. Uh-oh. Mary was understandably horrified, but de-escalated the situation and told him to go home and collect himself. I bet he was hammered. This wasn't the only thing he did like this. There's another account oh, where he wrote a letter to Mary saying, like, I've taken... I, I'm I'm killing myself. I took I took a bottle of laudanum. Um, and I'm dying. I'm on my deathbed. Like, come see me. Um, but her but her parents, um, Godwin and and Mary Jane, intercepted the letter. And feeling bad, they didn't tell Mary, but went to go see um, Percy. And they found him kind of in bed, just like, uh, uh, uh. 
And, but he was like kind of pissed that Mary wasn't there. And they said like in a couple <laughs> hours he was up and fine. So he was like totally faking it. Oh, God. It's like, <laughs> yeah. just walk it off. Jesus, man. Oh, Take a so bath. Funny. Take a shower yeah. or something. <laughs> drink some milk. Dude, he was hot to yeah, try, drink man. Drink some dude. goddamn milk. <laughs> Shortly thereafter, Godwin wrote Shelley, begging him to spare his daughter the hardships that no doubt lay ahead for her. This had no effect. As a few days later, Mary and her stepsister Jane met with Shelley in secret to run away with him. It should be noted, Mary was likely in the early stages of pregnancy as this was happening. The three boarded a small boat and left for France, and, to all their accounts, a yet unknown future. In August of that year, ten-year-old William Godwin ran away from home to escape the chaos there. He was found and returned soon thereafter. But this cemented the fact, in the Godwins' eyes, Shelley had effectively ruined their family. The refugee trio made their way to France. Mary had packed little in their hastily organized escape and was homesick, but happy. So here's some journal entries from that, uh, um, from their voyage to France, and it's pretty fucking nuts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, it is. So <laughs> journal, journal entry, Percy Shelley. The heat made her faint, Mary. It was necessary at every stage that she should repose. I was divided between anxiety for her health and terror lest our pursuers should arrive. I reproached myself with not allowing her sufficient time to rest, with conceiving any evil so great that the slightest portion of her comfort might be sacrificed to avoid it. At Dartford, we took four horses that we might outstrip pursuit. We arrived at Dover before four o'clock. Oh, I just wanted to mention something that um, the pursuers were debt collectors, correct? That he was uh, speaking well, of? I think it was debt collectors and also the Godwins. Um, okay. Like people the okay, Godwins yeah. had sent. Yeah. Yeah. He was they, always yeah, paranoid about pursued. those debt collectors. <laughs> yeah. Rightfully <laughs> Who so. Isn't? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, am I right? <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to add that in there. Oh, no. Absolutely. Yeah. So, You'll never catch me. <laughs> Go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so, journal entry, Mary Godwin. On arriving at Dover, I was refreshed by a sea bath. As we very much wished to cross the channel with all possible speed, but hiring a small boat, resolved to make the passage the same evening, the seamen promising us a voyage of two hours. The evening was most beautiful. There was but little wind, and the sails flapped in the flagging breeze. The moon rose, and night came on, and with a night a slow, heavy swell and a fresh breeze, which soon produced a sea so violent as to toss the boat very much. I was dreadfully seasick, and as usually my custom when thus affected, I slept during the greater part of the night, awakening only from time to time to ask where we were, and to receive the dismal answer each time, not quite halfway. Are we there yet? <laughs> yeah. Not quite Don't halfway. Make me, do not make me turn this boat around. <laughs> <laughs> the wind was violent and contrary. If we could not reach Calais, the sailors proposed making for Boulogne. They promised only two hours sail from shore, yet hour after hour passed, and we were still far distant. When the moon sunk in the red and stormy horizon, and the fast-flashing lightning became pale in the breaking day. 
We were proceeding slowly against the wind when suddenly a thunder squall struck the sail and the waves rushed into the boat. Even the sailors acknowledged that our situation was perilous. But they succeeded in reefing the sail, and the wind was now changed, and we drove before the gate directly to Calais. Journal entry, Percy Shelley. Mary did not know our danger. (laughs) (laughs) So funny. (laughs) She was resting between my knees that were unable to support her. She did not speak or look but I felt that she was there. I had time in that moment to reflect, and even to reason upon death. It was rather a thing of discomfort and disappointment than horror to me. We should never be separated, but in death we might not know and feel our union as now. I hope, but my hopes are not unmixed with fear for what may befall this inestimable spirit when we appear to die. The morning broke, the lightning died away, the violence and wind abated. We arrived at Calais, whilst Mary still slept. We drove upon the sands. Suddenly, the broad sun rose over France. Those poor people, they're just like on this boat ride and the storm picks up all of a sudden. Yeah. (laughs) I think it was like, oh yeah, I think it was like what was supposed to be a two hour journey ended up being, I mean, up until dawn. It's, oh god. <laughs> you know, yeah, dude, just fucking. <laughs> Shelley had planned poorly for their journey as well and brought no money along with them. He tried to sell his watch and chain but ended up taking out a loan of 60 pounds from a banker. The group, headed for Switzerland, resolved to complete the journey on foot to save money and purchased a mule to aid in their travels. The mule proved to be of little use and they ended up trading it for a carriage after Shelley had sprained his ankle. So, yeah, they bought a mule from this dude, but it was, like, this old, sickly mule. So, like, they ended up having to, like, basically carry the mule, (laughs) like, in in some ways. Like, like they just had to try to, like, drag it along and shit. It's just very funny. It sounds like Funny Farm with Chevy Chase or something. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's comedy of errors, for sure. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. The trio had little to eat for much of the journey, subsisting on scraps of bread at times. In the meantime, Shelley sent his estranged wife Harriet a letter, inviting her to join them in Switzerland in the communal life they had envisioned. Harriet did not... Shocking. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and as bad as it sounds, I mean, they they all write in their journals that they, they did have, like, these times or periods of, like... It, it was very nice, too, you know, like, it was, you know seeing some of the countryside yeah. and, and, you know, like having these really nice moments and I don't know, it was, it was kind of both good and bad, right? Absolutely. It was like very hard and, but, um, but they, they you know, they were also kind of free, yeah. um, to, which to the, to the young girls was like this, um, like really new, exciting experience yeah. of, you know, like they not were being seeing confined the world. to a house or to parents. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was very exciting. When the travelers finally reached Switzerland, They realized their dream would not be so easily obtainable. They were down to only half their funds, a mere 30 pounds, and it was discussed among them that they should use this to make their way back to England. Now all the while, Jane was falling madly in love with Percy. Uh Uh-oh. This did not go unnoticed by Mary. 
It should also be noted here that the seeds of Frankenstein were being planted firmly in Mary's mind on this journey. And, I mean, this isn't going to be the first time that we hear about a relationship between Jane and and Percy. Yeah. Very hotly contested. Yes. You know, because um, Mary makes a lot of cases that, like, Percy just kind of treats women, you know, like he's very flirtatious but doesn't follow through a right. lot. And he's also a poet, so he's got this kind of, like, he finds this thing like to fixate on as a poet um, and then when he's kind of like worked it out and written a poem or, or kind of worked out that that obsession yeah. it goes away but it could also be said that maybe Mary was being very naive so you know because we'll, we'll be hearing more about this you know as the story continues so it should be definitely kind of noted that hotly contested by historians whether this truly happened or yeah. not yeah I mean I, I don't bring it up as much as it was mentioned in the book because they were Shelly and, and Jane were, like, going off and doing their own thing all the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, probably likely they did, but yeah. it's it's not a sure thing. It, it'll play, there'll be a scandal later on. It'll play a pretty, pretty big role. Yeah. So, yeah, but but we really don't know, you know, I mean, because you'll see Shelly kind of, or you see Percy kind of, like, have these bouts of, of like, writing poems to women and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But Mary kind of feeling like she knows her husband's, like, poetic... Um, sensibilities yeah. kind of tries to defend him but again she may just be kind of being naive or or you know just kind of choosing not to address it yeah, yeah. address it yeah yeah so either one's very possible yeah absolutely so shortly before their arrival in lucerne in 1814 they stopped along the rhine river in germany on their journey there was a local legend of conrad dippel Dippel was a physician, alchemist, and occultist born at Castle Frankenstein in the 1670s. Excuse me. Legend has it that he was chased out of Strasbourg after accusation he was robbing graves for his experiments. He thought he could reanimate a body by giving it a concoction of animal and human corpse bones and flesh. Also in his work, Maladies and Remedies of the Life of the Flesh, he claimed he could transfer the soul of one body to another by using a special funnel. And he had developed an elixir of life that could extend the life expectancy of those who used it. Well, that's a lot. (laughs) Dude, I want to... I don't know if this is an actual book or not, but I want to fucking read it. It sounds super cool. I mean, funnels are so useful. I mean, that's the most useful funnel of all. I mean, I pour oil in my car with funnel and gives it life, right? (laughs) So, baby girl. Yeah, he's he's an interesting fellow for sure. I would like to look. Yeah, more I want to. I want to try to find this. <laughs> yeah, it sounds fucking super cool. <laughs> I bet you he's got a bunch of cool like um, illustrations. And oh, things I'm sure. Like that too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh God, so fucking rad. So there, there is a fair amount of speculation. This legend may have sparked the idea of the story of Frankenstein in Mary's mind, and it is likely that the travelers had heard it from the locals. Still, again, this is a highly debated topic among biographers. They decided they had to return to England, and went by way of Holland. The boat ride back was rough, and when they landed ashore, it was realized they did not have the money to pay the boatmen their fare. I suck you, Dick. (laughs) (laughs) Mind the barnacles there, sonny. (laughs) (laughs) So Percy paid a visit to his wife Harriet to get the money, as the boatman was following the travelers until he was paid. Harriet was hopeful that Percy would come back to her, but he refused, telling her she was no longer his wife. Harriet would soon give birth to their son. 
Now, I'm unsure if Shelley got the necessary funds from Harriet or elsewhere, but he ended up returning and paid the boatman, and they were able to secure a hotel in London, all three of them. Mm -hmm. The Godwins were hopeful that the girls would come to their senses and return home, but they had no plans to. Also, the Godwins were still relying on Shelley's money. Mary, now age 17, was not allowed to return to the family home, and her pregnancy was showing prominently. Because of her reckless decisions, her family and friends were turning their backs on her. And, you know, the, the shitty thing is, like, and this will be a theme with, with William Godwin, is, like, he'll, like, shun them, but also always be writing to Mary and to Percy asking for money. Yep. And basically being like, you owe me money. Yep. Um, you like, promised. I will be destitute if you do not pay me. Like, you know, it's just, yeah, it's really fucked yeah. up. It's, it's like, wow. I, 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 I. Through the story, I really don't like Godwin. Yeah, I don't um, either. It's too bad, man. He just turned into like a piece just of shit. nothing that he was before. It's so crazy, and I'm wondering if it was Wollstonecraft's death that did it to him. I think I think that really fucked him up. Um, and then I think he was just he was never a good businessman. Yeah, you know, and he kind of followed his his you know his new wife, yeah. and she kind of was all right, but not great either. And then I think desperation really. Oh, yeah, he I, 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 feel, I feel like it's it's like this desperation to hold on to this reputation that he used to have as a great intellectual yeah. and, you know, and then he just kind of lost it. And I think that kind of, I don't know, I, I think that desperation made him just fucking an, an annoyance. I know, you he's know, very annoying. To everybody around him. Yeah, and cruel in a way. Yeah, yeah, he'd be, yeah, like very callous and cruel. And I, But I think he was kind of callous in, in some ways. Like, I think a little shut off emotionally. Yeah. But it just becomes even worse as he gets older and, and oh, gets no. more crotchety. <laughs> and yeah, it's really, it's really, Um, I mean, eventually, you know, on the next episode, we'll talk about like Mary and him kind of patch things up and their and they're kind of last years together yeah. are much nicer. But, I mean, it's just he's constantly a fucking nuisance, Ugh. just always asking for money, even when they tell him we do not have money. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, we're struggling. And he's like, well, I'm going to be destitute. I'm going to be on the streets. Like, I will be ruined if you give me nothing. <laughs> and then they'll give him some and he'll be like, like this isn't enough <laughs> like, kind of thing. And it's just like, me? sorry, your baby died, but I need money. <laughs> it's just like fucking Jesus, dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's he's a fucking real piece of work. Yeah, man. he sure is. All these fuckers are. Yeah, all the all the dudes of the story are like, except Trelawney. Uh, we'll get into okay. him later. But yeah, yeah, <sighs> he's not the worst. He's he's actually one of the better people in the story. Oh, that's good. At least there's somebody for fuck's sake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he has his moments. Oh, too, I'm sure. For sure. What do you want? <laughs> so early 1800s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fucking angels here. Yeah. No. <laughs> so Jane, Mary's stepsister, continued to live with the couple and was a growing nuisance in the eyes of Mary. Jane had also decided she was going to drop her mother's name and now go by her birth name of Claire, and that's how I'll be referring to her from now on. Yeah, the name the name thing can get a little confusing yeah. at times. So. <laughs> yeah. Wait, who's Claire now? Jane, the stepsister that's been traveling with them okay. the whole time. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, and she becomes very annoying. Oh my to god! Them, um, because she is, in fact, she is very annoying. Yeah, she's I horrible. Mean, she's a, she's a fucking really annoying apple doesn't fall yeah. far from the tree. I guess. My goodness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no my <shit>. god. 
I just wanted well, to choke yeah, her. No, I reached through time and choke her. Oh, yeah, me too, man. Is she just like, oh, Jesus Christ, yeah. I mean, she she has her moments of being cool yeah. too, but most of the time she's just like, take care of me. I want to be an actress. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's just like, oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. The trio were in poor health, maybe because of Percy's insistence on leading a vegetarian lifestyle, subsisting much on potatoes, turnips, and cabbage. Mary was also confused as to why her father was excluding her from the family. She was, after all, following his very own principles. She decided to lay blame on her stepmother. Shelley would intermittently live separately from the girls, and this would be an occurrence throughout, like, really, the rest of, at least until they moved to Italy. I don't know if that was still happening after that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's he's around a lot more in Italy. Um, yeah, he's but but he definitely has a per, he has a propensity to kind of just go yeah. off. Yeah. I don't know. It's good, not it's kind of not good, not not bad kind of yeah. thing. Like he just he, he's he's an artist and he's definitely kind of like a you know head in the clouds kind of yeah. guy. So you know he just kind of goes off and does things on a whim. Yeah. But also at this time he's also you know trying to run from debtors debt collectors and get more money too he's like running from the debt collectors yeah, but and building get more, more debt at the same time oh he's always like yeah trying to i mean they're just trying to maintain that lifestyle because it's like they are intellectuals and artists and well like, he grew up we as a rich boy jobs. too so yeah that's true yeah he did mm-hmm. he doesn't he doesn't know anything else mm-hmm. uh, anyway <laughs> <laughs> so as i mentioned before percy suffered bouts of paranoia as well. He was always looking over his shoulder and some of his friends reported that he would like dodge and like duck down or like lay on his belly and hide behind a wall from like unseen debt collectors. There's like nobody there. Oh my god. <laughs> How goofy. Yeah. But I mean they they were like tracking him yes. and like you know he he easily could have been thrown in into a yeah, prison. Yeah, the debtor's prison. Which yeah. I mean like Ooh, that was not a place you wanted to be. No. Um, so, I mean, he was right to be paranoid, but it's just kind of yeah. comical how they explain it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck are you doing, Duck, Percy? Duck cover. Duck collectus. <laughs> you cool, man. <laughs> oh, nothing. I'll just eat my, I'll eat my ham on the floor. Don't mind me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so during this time, Mary was getting acquainted with Percy's old friend, Thomas Jefferson Hogg. He was invited by Percy to join them in their communal living and their vision of free love. Hogg took interest in Mary and wanted a sexual relationship with her, likely encouraged by Shelley. But she was torn and in the end refused. Mary's first child was born in February of 1815, two months prematurely. Sadly, the child was not expected to survive and passed over a week later. Infant mortality was very high during this time. Mary was distraught, and she took this very hard. Not only did she blame herself for her mother's death, but now for the death of her baby. Mary mentions her grief briefly in subsequent journal entries. Sunday, March 19th. Dream that my little baby came to life again that it had only been cold and that we rubbed it before the fire and it lived. Awake and find no baby. I think about the little thing all day. Not in good spirits. Oh, God. <laughs> that's so sad. Oh, my God. That's so sad. No. 
But I, I, I think that's very um, kind of like that like dream that she has is very um, telling about Frankenstein. Yeah. Live. Even though it's um, even though it's a very short, you know, little brief, yeah. you know, excerpt. Um, yeah. I think that was also mentioned in um, Seymour's book too. That same excerpt and yeah, and, and the parallel. Yeah, and and she mentions the word regeneration. Yes. Often, um, especially later on in Italy. Um, so mm-hmm. I know I, I think all these things are sort of they're sort of coalescing in her mind. Uh, you, you know, as she's approaching um, what will get her to write Frankenstein. Yeah. She'll write it before she gets to Italy, but... um, Yeah. 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 In the summer of 1815, Shelley reconciled with his father after the death of his grandfather and worked with him to settle his debts and to receive an allowance. Shelley paid Godwin a small portion of what he thought he was promised, and Percy sent Mary to live in their rented Bishopsgate house in North Devon. By this time, Mary was pregnant for the second time, and her spirits were lifted. She could garden here and expand her studies in classical subjects. Both she and Shelley began writing again, and the house was alive with visiting friends and intellectual discussions. In January 1816, Mary's second child, William, was born, and he was healthy. Soon after this, Godwin wrote Shelley, declaring that he forgave them and to ask for more money. Shelley wrote an irritated reply, however, assured him that he would receive the money. This fucking guy, man. <laughs> oh, dude, Jesus he's Christ. he's fucking relentless, yeah. man. He's like, I forgive you, but where's my money? Yeah. So did he like ever work or anything? Like, yeah, what was they his they deal? ran that bookshop and they published books. Oh, that's yeah. Right. It just they weren't they weren't good at business. Like they weren't good at managing a business, and and he just yeah, was. Yeah, I've certainly worked for people yeah. like that too. Yeah, it wasn't. I don't know. It wasn't for lack of trying, but they they just weren't good at it. Yeah. You know, like he mm-hmm. was he was a writer. You know, yes. he wasn't a business owner. <sighs> yeah. yeah, good old Godwin. <laughs> now rumors and gossip were abound back in London surrounding Shelley and Mary. So Percy took Mary and the baby back to Geneva for a short while. In the meantime, Claire had her eye on the poet, Lord Byron. (laughs) He was already a celebrity by this time, and she planned to seduce him in order to further her dreams of becoming an actress. So I will say Lord Byron, he's he's a real piece of shit. But goddamn, I love his I love his writing. He's he is he's amazing. He's a horrible man. Like he's incredible, Hmm. but Oh, he's a fucking piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's horrible. Yeah. Well, he was young, hot, mm-hmm. and the ladies were all over him, you know? Like I was gonna say he's synonymous with like hotness and being dreamy yeah. and stuff. Yeah, he was considered the like most attractive man in England at the time. Yes. Mm-hmm. Really? And and super talented to boot. Yep. I mean, he was also considered like one here. of the great intellectuals and, and artists, you know, poets of his day. Mug. Yeah, and Seymour said mm-hmm. that people w- like would gather like outside of his house to try to catch a glimpse of him through his window. And I heard he had a wonderful voice too. <laughs> so like when he read or spoke oh, aloud. Oh, he looks like a douchebag. <laughs> yeah. He looks like he needs like a polo shirt and Can like, you can you hold Easter up pants? can you hold yeah, up to the to the camera? Mm. Look mm. at him. Yes. Oh, he parts his hair mm. and he looks like he pops his collar. <laughs> <laughs> He's got kind of chubby squirrel cheeks. 
like like me. Oh shit! Look at these sideburns. <laughs> Would thou he like to do a so Jaeger ball? Oh my god! Look at that hairline. Yeah, exactly. No, <laughs> oh, dude. Noise. Wow. Could I entreat you and your fellow ladies to do a body shot with me? <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> So Claire's advances were accepted by him, and affair was, an affair was underway. Claire fell in love with Byron and confessed this to him, but the relationship was decidedly only a fling to him. Furthermore, he was more interested in the company of Mary and Percy, planning to meet up with them in Geneva. Ugh. <laughs> he looks like he's like the type of dude at a party that would, like, ask you a question about something you're interested in because he heard about it from a friend and then totally check out and like continuously nod his head and stuff like yes. that and you just know he's not listening to you and you're like oh, I remember I went to a college party at um, at USF it was like a, just some, some weird college party and there was this dude he was he he was one of the actors in a in a, in a, a production of Hair. Uh oh, which is fucking I, I fucking hate that. It's it's so dumb, but I don't know. Yeah. A lot of people love Hair. Anyway, they uh-huh. all get naked. I think that's yeah. just like the big thing. Uh-huh. It's kind of shit. Uh-huh. Other than that, uh-huh. but anyway, I remember seeing him later on in the night, and he's like chatting up this girl, uh-huh. and he's just like. Yeah, so in my philosophy class, you know, we're talking about this. And he's just like, just like, dude, you fucking Oh, bro, come on. Oh, I know. I'm so glad. (laughs) Oh, I know. I'm so glad I don't have to talk to that demographic anymore. (laughs) Yep. I'm sure it worked. I'm I'm sure he got laid. (sighs) I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 100%. 100%. Gross, man. Because Nietzsche Nietzsche really gets panties wet, I guess. (laughs) I don't know. Ew. That's the God honest truth. (laughs) Man, not me. I was like, can you get me another beer and stop talking? (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah. You can see right through it. But not everybody can. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, true. For sure. He was was objectively pretty good looking. Yeah, well. You know. I guess. I guess that's okay. Might as well do it while you can. (laughs) She might have been like, you're just good looking, dude. I, I really don't care. <laughs> yeah. So Claire enthusiastically arranged the meeting through correspondences and wished to accompany him to Geneva. Mary was already a fan of Byron's work, having read many of his poems over the past couple years. Byron, in turn, was a fan of Godwin's. Just before Byron left for Geneva, Claire discovered she was pregnant. Oh. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and this is like this whole affair is. Yeah, it's awful. Uh, it gets really fucking awful later. Yeah. yeah. Byron rented a villa right across the lake from the Shelleys. During that summer in 1816, many intellectual conversations and storytelling sessions took place. Took place. Took place. My goodness. <laughs> Sorry. I like that though. It took, it took place. place at a villa. Goddammit. <laughs> <laughs> During that summer in 1816, many intellectual conversations and storytelling sessions took place between Percy, Mary, Byron, and Polidori, a a physician friend of theirs. And Polidori was said to be a a very abysmal writer. (laughs) Yeah, he fancied himself like a writer, but they were just like, oh, he's he's fucking awful. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, They felt bad for him, though. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, they they have, oh. they have a couple friends who are like 
good people that they yeah. like, but but they also kind of like, you know, fancy themselves to be you poets or, or writers. Yeah. Um, probably because they're hanging out with other yeah. ones and they just kind of get into it and they're always just like, huh? Huh? Yeah, that's fucking. Uh. <laughs> yeah, like oh yeah, god. Like, yeah, it's really good. That was unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, in most popular belief, it was here on a dark and stormy night that the group had a storytelling session and came up with the idea to each write a supernatural tale. It is said this is the moment where Mary would be inspired to begin work on Frankenstein. So. They were all like, well, not all of them, but like Percy and Claire especially were really into the occult. Mary and Claire, um, when they were kids, were into the occult, but Mary had kind of outgrown it and kind of was just like, it's silly. But like Percy and Claire were both like really into it and they'd like practice and then like talk about it to the point where they'd scare themselves <laughs> yeah like they had oh, one yeah. night Cute. where they were trying to do like a, a they were trying to do a seance and like they freaked themselves out so much that like claire went running through the house screaming and percy too yeah. and like they had to tie percy to a bed and gag him and mary had to try to soothe him until he like calmed down so oh like they're, they're sitting here freaking themselves out with like stories of the supernatural and occult and like this was kind of like a a subject that they would sometimes touch on. Yeah. So it wasn't weird that then Byron would say, you know, we should write, we should each try to write a supernatural yeah. tale or, or ghost story, essentially. Yeah. That's like throw you in a poor house for a week and see if you're still scared by that stuff. <laughs> yeah, right? Percy's a ridiculous <laughs> oh, human that's being. That's so funny. <laughs> that's so silly. I know. He's, he's, yeah, he's too much, man. <laughs> but, you know, following this storytelling inception story of Frankenstein, Mary would change this story and offer varying accounts over the course of her life of how Frankenstein was developed, like whether she came up with the story that night or it was like a couple days later, so on and so forth. So Claire's pregnancy, still a secret to Mary, but not to Percy, was discussed among he and Byron. It was clear that Byron had no intention of taking financial responsibility for the child, so Percy amended his will to leave Claire 6,000 pounds and another 6,000 to a person of her choice or her unborn child. Further pleas with Byron resulted in an arrangement. Claire would act as the child's aunt until seven years' time, when Byron, Byron would take the child himself. He still maintained that he had no desire to stay in Claire's life. So already he was like, I'm not sticking around with you. Like, I'll take the kid when it's old enough to to be cool. But until then, nah. Yeah, and he would and he would kind of keep changing his mind um, as it all progresses. Yeah. I mean, it, he just kind of all over the fucking place, you know. It's just How like, many ladies must have he had gotten pregnant, though? I think he had a number of illegitimate children. I don't think it was like... Oh, I'm... Yeah. I, oh, I'm sure. I think it was a huge amount, but there is definitely a couple to a few. Mm-hmm. That we know of. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that we know of. <laughs> At this point, Percy and Mary had been together for two years. And in August, Mary began writing Frankenstein in earnest. While still in Geneva, Percy received a letter from his father saying that his allowance would be increased if they moved back to England. The group packed their bags and said goodbye to their beloved lake in September. Percy and Mary, now aware of her stepsister's condition, did all they could to hide her pregnancy. Mary wanted to make a home with Percy without Claire, 
but he flatly refused, thinking himself responsible for her. Shelley's friend Peacock helped them look helped them look for a home in Barth. I mean, Mary and Percy kind of none of them neither of them really wanted her there, but they kind of both felt responsible yeah. for her in some ways. Like Mary did they did want a home for themselves, but they both felt responsible. Yeah. Um and they actually like kept the pregnancy a secret for until the baby was born. Until after the baby basically. was born, yeah. Um Yeah, oh yeah, you're right. Absolutely yeah. until after the baby. Yeah. So I mean like they it was kind of crazy, but she was just yeah, she's very insufferable. Oh yeah. Uh, I feel bad for for hating her so much, but God do I ever. <laughs> I know she's yeah, dude. <laughs> Goddamn. So, Fanny, um Mary's other sister, her older sister, um uh by 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 Mary Wollstonecraft. Yes. Um or, or I guess the, the father was Imlay. Yes, um, Imlay. The first husband. Uh, Fanny, back at Skinner Street, was falling deeper and dis- to despair. She had previously expressed interest in joining Mary, Percy, and Claire, but her requests had been ignored, as she and Mary had an explosive falling out two years prior. Feeling abandoned and depressed, she wanted desperately to repair the distress in the Godwin home. She pleaded with Mary to give Godwin the money he was promised, but was met with cold replies. In October 1816, feeling defeated, Fanny ran off to Bristol. Her family attempted to find her, and Shelley himself went out to Bristol to track her. But he was too late. She had rented a room, swallowed a bottle of laudanum, committing suicide. Well, at least somebody fucking got it with the laudanum. (laughs) Jesus. I'm just kidding. Third time's a charm. Tossing that shit around like nothing. I, I think that's what Poe also took trying to kill himself on his like one suicide attempt. I think it was it was a laudanum. Sounds like fucking aspirin in this story, but somebody got it. <laughs> yes. I took this bottle of baby aspirin. Oh, they'll all pay. I'm like, finally. <laughs> Flintstones <Eureka>. vitamins. <laughs> I'm no. sorry. She that's Yeah, it is sad. pretty sad. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really awful. Yeah, it's really sad. <laughs> Fanny's body was found, still wearing the Swiss gold watch given to her by Mary. Her suicide note read, I have long determined that the best thing I could do was to put an end to the existence of a being whose birth was unfortunate and whose life has only been a series of pain to those persons who have hurt their health in endeavoring to promote her welfare. Perhaps to hear my death may give you pain, but you will soon have the blessing of forgetting that such a creature ever existed. Oh, that's truly, that's a suicide letter. Dude, you know what I mean? Like, all that shit about the Victorian era, they knew how to fucking write a suicide letter. Yeah, and like, it ends abruptly too in like mid-sentence. And her grammar's kind of weird toward the end, so they think like she was writing it as the laudanum was taking effect. Oh yeah, it's it's, it's funny because I saw I saw you put it. I cut the and yeah. just to make it. I didn't. Oh, I didn't realize yeah. that. Oh my god. Oh no, shit. It's a, oh. It, it, it is weird. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Very sad. Yeah, Very sad. it's really sad. Very sad. And Fanny was depressed, like a de- depressed child, a depressed teenager. I mean, she was just, uh, poor thing, just not not yeah. of high spirits. She must have been a hot ticket then. She must have been very pretty. You know, I think I saw a painting of her, and she was. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So 
So after this, Godwin wrote directly to Mary for the first time since her elopement, only to urge her to not draw attention to the suicide, avoiding further scandal. Mary respected these wishes. Life went on, however, and Mary and Percy worked together on Frankenstein. They would borrow scientific texts from the library to add more depth to the story. It was a collaborative effort. But it, it definitely should be known that it's like mostly. Oh, Mary. yeah, for sure. He just like, helped. It, it is like mostly. Yeah, he just kind of helped her like iron out details. But I mean, like the story is, is I mean, mostly hers. And I think she wrote most of it. I think he just kind of helped with like kind of kind of those details. Yeah. Um, and some wording, but, you know, but because she should. Yeah, but she should. I mean, so he essentially edited. Yeah, as yeah, it was he being helped her edit it. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. and she definitely um, should should get most of the credit oh, yeah, for it. Certainly. Oh, so it was yeah. just a slight. It was just a collaboration in yeah. that way. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, Percy's work was also gaining some attention during this time. An old acquaintance of his, Lee Hunt, a poet and critic, had published positive reviews regarding some of his, some of his works. Percy had helped Hunt financially some years before. In December 1816, more tragic news came. The body of Harriet Westbrook, Percy's estranged wife, was pulled from the serpentine after she had been missing for six weeks, having committed suicide. She had been very pregnant, and it is speculated that the baby may have been Percy's, perhaps conceived on one of his visits to her that year. Percy lied about the circumstances of Harriet's death to Mary, maybe to save face and clear himself of blame. In any case, marriage was brought up to Mary in order to not only strengthen their case in his and Harriet's children's custody battle, but also to appease Godwin and get them back into his good graces. Mary agreed, but only if they held the wedding in London so her father could attend. Upon hearing the news, Godwin invited the couple to dinner at Skinner Street, and on December 30th, they legitimized their union and were married at St. Mildred's. In January 1817, Claire gave birth to Byron's daughter, Elba. The Godwins did not know of Claire's child. Meanwhile, Mary found out she was pregnant for the third time. The Hunts, family friends of the Godwins, helped to hatch a plan to continue to conceal Claire's baby. They were hospitable and kind, as the trio stayed with them through the months their new home in Marlowe was being renovated. It was during their stay with the Hunts that Mary discovered her love of music, namely Mozart, that she would cherish for the rest of her life. In March, the custody battle for Percy's other children did not go in his, in his favor. It was decided he was unfit to care for the children on the grounds that he had abandoned his first wife and that he was a declared atheist. The children were given over to foster parents, and this was a great disappointment to Percy and Mary, who loved children. Yeah, Mary was really on his side yeah. for that, and she and she they even had a house, uh, and she prepared rooms for the kids, um, you know, hoping that everything would go well. I mean, and the court case really, it really panned out to where they didn't really they only went against Percy because of his like atheist views, yeah. and they saw him as a moral degenerate because of these like wow. philosophies that he held. It wasn't that he was he would have been a bad dad or that he couldn't provide for them any more yeah. or less. It was just it was his philosophical leanings came and writings came and kicked him in the ass. Yep, in the court, one hundred percent. 
Yeah, man. Wow. Yeah, Mary was pretty crushed yeah, by it. Yeah, she was. Because um, she, she was like, it, she'll back Percy 100% all, all through her life. Yeah. So they moved to their new home, Albion House in Marlowe, with Claire and baby Alba. Percy had furnished and decorated the large home with all the luxury and furnishings Mary had wanted. On credit, of course. Now, 19 years old, Mary was working on the last chapters of Frankenstein as they made the move. She was busy caring, caring for the children, running a large household busy with visitors coming and going, all the while finishing her novel. Mary showed Godwin her manuscript for Frankenstein in May, and by her account, he enjoyed it. Percy wrote the preface of the novel, and 500 copies of it were printed under an, anom- an anonymous name. Mary was to receive one-third of the profits. Mary had baby Clara in September of 1817, and the birth took a toll on her. She was unable to produce enough milk for the child and was, filling, and was falling sick. Percy was experiencing another bout of ill health himself, and their physician, Dr. Lawrence, recommended that they move to a more temperate climate. He suggested Italy. In January 1818, copies of Frankenstein went into circulation. However, the authorship was credited to Percy. It did not go unnoticed, experiencing much criticism and disgust on one hand, and praise for its creative and inventive ideas on the other. The book gained popularity by word of mouth, and a year that and later that year, it had widespread recognition. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't up its own ass intellectually. Yeah. Um, so it was written in a way that like most people could understand. So the book did very well with like with you know regular people who who could read yeah. and stuff. Um, I mean, it it, it it actually became very popular like pretty yeah. quickly. Um, yeah, it was it definitely. You know, it did not. It you know, at for it, with all of these things, it kind of starts slow, but once it starts gaining like ground and popularity, it like it launches super yeah. quickly. Um, and you'll see that kind of happen with a lot of Mary's work. It'll like kind of be a slow turn at first, but then once it catches on, it Boom. like launches and, and yeah. yeah, yeah. So the Shelleys were in a mountain of debt just after just under a year living in Albion House. They were forced to find a buyer to take the rest of their lease, and in early 1818, they left Albion House and prepared themselves for the journey to Italy. The excitement mounted as they drew nearer to their destination, and they even stopped in Switzerland and visited some old acquaintances along the way. They arrived in Milan, spirits high and the health of all improving. The Shelleys were looking forward to their future, with Claire and baby Alba in tow. As a biographer wrote, for, as a biographer for Mary wrote in 1889, Mary little thought how long it would be before she saw the English shores again, nor that, when she returned, it would be alone. Oh, and that's where we will stop for this episode. Dang. And it doesn't get any better from here. No. Uh Actually, gets a lot more fucking sad. <laughs> but I will say it. It ends on a bittersweet note. It 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 kind of has a happy ending, in, in some ways. Yeah. So oh, that's exciting. Yeah, it's yeah. It's, it's. Well, no matter how the story ends, we know that she's 
will always be a household name. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's it's yeah. I mean, after the second episode, as, as things kind of progressively get worse, I mean, that's the one kind of consoling thought to keep in mind is like her. She kind of like she's sort of immortal. Yeah. In, in a lot of mm-hmm. ways, you know, she she reaches that that status. And it's funny because yeah, her husband synonymous with Dickens, you know. Yeah. It's funny because her husband kind of like became more famous than her in her lifetime and a little after. But I mean, we, we kind of barely talk or or even really look at Percy yeah. Shelley's work. I mean, she's she's overshadowed him oh, in sure. in so many ways. You know, ways that ways that I don't even think she realized yeah. um, she would at the time. I didn't even know what her husband's name was until we started this. So, I mean, uh, and he's a good poet. He's got some really great works. I mean, like like he he was a um, a really great artist in his own way. Yeah, or a good writer. You know, um, like I was just reading some of his work, and I'm definitely going to pursue reading some more. But um, but yeah, it was really I really liked his stuff. It was it's very good. That's awesome. I need um, to pick some you up. Know. Yeah. yeah, he's he's got some really good poems, and um, I think he's got some other pieces that are probably a little drier. Like, his criticism back then was, like, his thoughts were kind of sometimes all over the place and so, like, intricate that um, it was hard for other people who weren't um, very, you know, um, very versed in, in those, um, like, in literary leanings and, like, in intellectuals themselves. It was hard for people to grasp. Yeah. Um, yeah. So... Yeah, it was just kind of, you know, I don't know. God, he's a very head in the clouds. Yeah, (laughs) not surprising though. He's kind of an erratic person in nature. Yeah, yeah. I I think his his disposition definitely bears out in his like in his life, you know, in his actions and things like that. Yeah. Well, any thoughts before we um, take off for this one? No, (laughs) I I think. um, (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot. It's It's a a lot lot of information. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, next episode we'll pick it up from uh when they get to Italy, all the problems and tragedies that happen there. Um her return back to England and then you know, kind of her slow rise to to fame. Yeah. You know. I'm excited cool. to hear yeah. that part. Well, thank you for listening to this uh part 1 on Mary Shelley and we will be back with part 2. And I guess we should do socials. Social. You could follow us on Facebook at Under the Pendulum Podcast, on Instagram at Under Pendulum Podcast, on Twitter at Pendulum underscore pod, and you can find all our episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, the iHeartRadio app, or almost anywhere else you listen to your pods. Oh, shit. So cute. (laughs) Kawaii. (laughs) Yeah, I I added some more, too, so we'll we'll be... It's just going to get longer and longer. <laughs> That's why I'm just going to say hey. almost anywhere else you listen to your pods. <laughs> I was just listening to NPR today and they were like, I was just like, oh, and they just keep going where you can find this episodes and more episodes. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I can't list them all. That just, it's... That's so funny. I was going to say you can find me on Instagram, uh, Frothy Star Dog. Hell yeah. That's nice and easy. You can find me on Facebook, Heather Thomas, Instagram, h.n.thomas, Twitter, at Heather W. Thomas. And you can hear my narrations on Creepy, Tales to Terrify, The Wicked Library, Pseudopod. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you can find me on Instagram and Facebook by searching for Christopher Weber. Woo!
And if you feel like it, see how many Frankenstein accounts there are out there <laughs> mm-hmm. of various things. Yeah. And uh, please like and subscribe to wherever it's applicable. That'd be great. Um, it helps us get and noticed. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, we can. Yeah. And talk to us, motherfuckers. Yeah. Oh, you can email us too. Yes. We have an email address. You can email us. You can send us messages. What's our email on address? Any of the social medias. Uh, it's under the pendulum podcast um, at gmail.com. Okay. Yay! Yep. So pretty easy. It's it's even if it's your grocery list. Just, oh, I'd like know. to see what you're yeah. getting. Just, no, just pop in and say yeah. hello. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. me too. Maybe get some good I know, ideas. I need to switch it up myself. <laughs> yeah, you getting some good oat milk? Let me know about oat milk. Mm. Yes, mm. love me some oat milk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, sorry, this episode was a bit of a bummer. The next one's not going to be any better, but um. Yeah, you know, hey, nature of horror. <laughs> that's just a nature. That's a horror podcast. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you for listening, everybody, and we will see you next time. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.